Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Money and me on your money. Only on Money FM 89.3. Good morning and welcome to Money and Me. Singapore shares down this morning. Investor confidence dented really by the fall in tech shares uh, overnight on Wall Street. We're going to take a closer look at markets. Investors sold off overnight. Tech shares were the worst hit. The Nasdaq dropped more than 2%. The S&P 500 fell about 1.3% and the Dow wasn't far behind. We're seeing bond yields rise and oil prices spiking as well. Uh, we take a look at uh, how the STI is trading this morning. It is down about 1.2% just a nudge off to 3,052.55. Now, Sydney in the red investors in Australia have their eyes on the Reserve Bank of Australia, which is going to be announcing an interest rate decision at 11.30 this morning. And it so happens we're joined by Jack Cousy, founder and director of VFS Group, live from Australia. Good morning, Jack. Morning, Michelle. Thanks for reminding me about that RBA rate. Actually, I had uh, <laughs> completely uh, forgotten about that. I'm so consumed. In what's happening in global markets, I um, often forget what's going on here locally down here in Australia. But thanks for having me on. I've got to say, it's a shame that the first time we do this via video call, I haven't been able to get a haircut for seven weeks now. So I did my best. (laughs) Looking really sharp, if I do say so myself. We have checked out your videos, of course. Yeah, looking really sharp, Jack. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so the RBA widely anticipated to maintain its current monetary policy on hold. I mean, are you expecting an on hold stance just just generally? Yeah, I mean, there's not much room to go, is there, really? So we're we're pretty much, you know, at at a bottom basement. Um, And the only place they can go to zero, and they're definitely not going to go to negative. Uh, I think we've... I think central banks around the world have learned from the Japanese and the Europeans that you don't necessarily want to go to negative because it doesn't do much to promote growth and that's what you're looking for. So I think the biggest issue that the RBA is facing right now, mm-hmm. particularly with interest rates down here, and I think this is a global phenomenon, is that asset prices are going ballistic down here. So um, housing, the housing market is it's on a tear. It's it's beyond com- um, comprehension. And we kind of touched upon this uh, last month when we were on the show. You know, Sydney prices are up something like, you know, double digits, mm-hmm. uh, up to 20% in some areas uh, in Sydney. Most major cities have seen incredible gains in the housing market. And we are now concerned about a massive debt bubble in this country. Um, so I think that's an issue. We, we did see in the last week our treasurer talking about limiting uh, credit uh, and limiting lending to those investing in the housing market. But I believe we are in the midst of a housing bubble here in Australia. Um, and, you know, the RBA coming down and lowering interest rates would just put fuel to a fire. Uh, so I think that's their biggest concern. But they have to weigh that up with economic growth concerns. So our two largest cities have been shut down for quite a long time now. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're major contributors to the, to, the, to the national economy. We obviously have China slowdown, which I'm, we're sure we're going to talk about. Um, and they're a big buyer of our resources. That's really come off. So we're at a very precipitous time here in this, in this great country of ours. And uh, governments and, and central banks will have to navigate it, uh, you know, with a fine-tuned economy. And, and I certainly hope they do so. But, yeah, interesting times. But I expect no, no movement. All right. I mean, the annual inflation rate in Australia, I understand, 3.8% in the second quarter of this year. Yeah. And that's the highest reading in over a decade. So I'm sure that's going to yeah. weigh on policymakers' decisions as well. But 
Did you want to wear yeah. that? Sorry, yeah, go on. No, no, th- I mean, we, things are getting more expensive. There's no doubt about it. And now that we're reopening, you've got to think that um, retail is going to have some pricing power and we're going to pay it with all the pent-up savings that we have from being locked down. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's going to be a, an interesting couple of months for, for, for Australia, that's for all sure. Right. From Australia, let's swing over to China. We love checking in with you about China uh, in our shows, Jack, because you offer us such great opinions. Now, we know that China's central bank made the news recently because it forbid all has has forbidden all crypto related transactions. Uh, Crypto markets appeared largely nonplussed in, in terms of reaction. Do you think investors have become sort of immune to China's serial pronouncements? You know, the bannings, the the warnings, um, or or do you think stormier waters? lie ahead. Michelle, um, this in front of me is a walkie-talkie. It's a uh, a frozen walkie-talkie. And I talk to my daughters on it, even though their English is a bit gibberish at the moment. But um, my eldest daughter, Scarlett, who's at daycare at the moment, her favourite movie is Frozen. Mm. I don't know if you've seen it. Have you seen Frozen? I have not. It's a great movie. Okay. Okay. It's really good. It's really good. And this is Queen Elsa from Arendelle, right? Now, I have seen this movie... Seven times. And every time I watch it, Michelle, it is the same start and the same ending. And I think the market has seen this movie. I mean, I think I read a stat or heard a stat that China has had some type of ban on cryptocurrency 13 times since 2016. Mm. Um, And when we look at the pricing in the crypto market, it really didn't feel it, did it? I mean, Bitcoin bounced right back. I think it's just touching $50,000. I had a look before it came in. Most of your major cryptocurrencies like Ethereum, uh, Solana, um, most of them rebounded. So we kind of saw that movie, but I think we've got to understand why, you know, it's, it's been able to bounce back or didn't feel it a long, a long time. I think China's been in this move of banning or limiting cryptocurrency transactions within the mainland for a long time. So they are still a big part of crypto transactions. My understanding is they still make up about 20 to 25% of all crypto transactions that happen. So that's done by you know, someone on the mainland or a Chinese citizen. But that's come down from about 30% a year ago. So they have started to limit in terms of their movement. Mm-hmm. You are seeing a lot of that slack taken up by Chinese uh, from the West. So Europe, North America, we're seeing a lot of new movement in the market. So I think that's contributed a lot. And the fact that we've kind of heard this from the Chinese before um, and you have new players coming into the market. China is doing this for a number of reasons. It has the digital yuan coming, right? Yep. So it's got its own DCEP program. So it doesn't want to take away from that DCEP program. It also wants to limit cross-border outflows from China. So it's, it's been really good in, in doing that, you know, keeping money inside China with the regulations that it has. And crypto is kind of a, a way out, you know. It's, it's anonymous. It's, it's kind of easier to do. You can get money out. So it really wants to move on those types of things. It was a very bold statement. You know, it said, it, you know, any transactions in it is banned. Any foreign platform use is banned. So it was, it was a much bolder statement than we've seen previously. Um, I think the only domino effect this might have on the broader crypto market is if other nations take a leaf out of China. So if other nations start to say, well, you know, this is a risk to our currency, this is a risk to our banking system, Um, does the US say this is a a risk to the US dollar, 
and it being the world's reserve currency, mm. that's when I think you'll really have a hit on crypto. But at the moment, it hasn't. Um, and the other point I'll make is where is gold? You know, like where is gold in this environment? We did see a little bit of a spike in gold, but you have this monetary debasing that we're seeing across the globe. We're printing money like it's out of fashion, and gold really hasn't moved. And you've got to think that Bitcoin and the $1.6 trillion market, that money we might have sold into commodities or gold as that asset has really flowed into, into crypto. So just multiple areas we're seeing. I listened to a podcast from the guys at ARK Invest and Kathy Wood, who I'm sure your listeners would know. Actually, she talked I'm going about to be able to, DeFi. I'm going to be able to watch Kathy Wood live and I've been asked to submit some questions to her. So if you have any questions for You're Kathy Wood, me. let me know. I'm not kidding. Uh, I mean, I, I will send you some. Cause <laughs> Thank I, you, Jack. I, I mean, I love Kathy Wood. I'll yeah? say that okay. right now. Right? Okay. She's the best. She's mm. the best. She's uh, uh, And she talks about DeFi and, you know, how it's upsetting the bank. So, China's, I think, worried about also that it, its risk to its financial system. So it's very resilient. We're seeing a lot of people come into this market. And like I said, I think we've seen the movie many times. And that's why we didn't see much of the move out of, out of the market. Okay, well, I, I just want to take this uh, a little further in terms of, you know, what's going on sure. in China. Do you think... Um, Broadly, before we get to China's power crunch, I mean, all this morning, really, we're mm. talking about Evergrande and its possible yeah. impact, jitters in the property market, uh, possible contagion effect. This morning, we saw another property developer default on a bond. When you, when you read China, what is happening with its economy? Is it taking off the way we thought it would with COVID under control? What's happening? No, it's not. I mean, GDP figures have been lowered out of China. Um, you've obviously got the Evergrande. You're in the midst of this massive crackdown on tech. Uh, you have a slowing economy. There's no doubt that the, the, the economy is slowing. Um, it just seems like China just can't get any good news at the moment. Mm. Um, but I'll go back to what I said last month. China does not think in election cycles. Um, and it also does not think in 52-week highs and 52-week lows. It thinks in 30, 40, or 50 years. So I think that the tech regulation is part of a broader plan to manage their digital economy. Um, so I think that's actually going to benefit them in the long term. I think, you know, data is a natural resource. They're treating it like that. They're determining what they want to use and what they want to release to the rest of the world. I think it's tech companies are going to be really fine. I actually think they're a great buying opportunity. I kind of been saying that for two months, but you know the market's just really volatile at the moment. I look at something at Alibaba; it's trading at three times earnings. Sorry, three times revenue. That to me is you know a screaming buy. But you have to deal with this regulation that's going on. If you want to talk about Evergrande. China has been trying to curb its property market for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. President Xi has said houses are for living, not for speculating. Mm -hmm. um, they've been trying to reduce the amount of high debt within this liquidity market, and they've been doing it you know, since November last year and, and previously to that, and these are some of the effects that we're seeing from this. They are trying to push credit down, and to some extent it's working, and, and you're getting these areas like Evergrande. I don't think it's a Lehman's Brothers, uh, and the fact is it's got a lot of hard assets and Lehman's doesn't, so you had those kind of connotations around could this be a Lehman's brother for China. It's got a lot of assets. 
The other fear was the state-owned enterprises or the state banks were so endowed to it. Uh, they had lent a lot of money and that you could have a, a breakdown in, 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 in that banking sector. It's not as big as we thought it was. Um, and again, these state banks are very well capitalized and can handle this for quite a long time. You're probably not going to see the end of some of these Chinese developers, but you know the, the government will has and will step in and they will curb it, but they will also allow some things to fail. And we have to understand that this is actually a sign of a maturing economy in China. It wants to decrease debt. It's going to have these issues. Most major economies around the world have had it. The U.S. had it during the global financial crisis. Europe had it in terms of its banking crisis. Um, so it's not a great look. Uh, it doesn't certainly fit into the social contract that China has with its people. And a lot of money people will lose money. But these are just signs of an economy that's, I think, maturing. And the other thing I'll say about the slowdown is China understands that it can't become a middle-income country it can't become a major country in the world in terms of economic development if it relies simply on exports. It has to rely on household consumption within that. So it's making moves to do so. Um, and I think in the long term, it will really benefit from this. But it's been a tough six months for China. There's no doubt about it. Its market has been hit. Its bond market has been routed. Um, but if you look at government bonds within China, which mm -hmm. is a major part of um, info, they've held up reasonably well. So um, you have these corporate debt issues that you will probably continue to see. We saw with Coron Bank, you know, six months ago we talked about that. But these are signs of, you know, what an economy needs to do. Um, and, you know, there's always a plan in China and it doesn't necessarily always, you know, run to exactly how they want it. Um, but... You know, the central bank within China has been a very good manager of its economy. I think this will start to level out. I don't think you'll see a contagion within um, Evergrande. And then, you know, I really think Chinese equities are a buying opportunity at these levels. Yeah, we're going to continue to monitor how successful Beijing is in terms of ring-fencing Evergrande's financial yeah. problems. Uh, trading in Evergrande shares, by the way, halted in Hong Kong yesterday. And right. yesterday, another company called Fantasia Holdings missed a payment on a 200 million US dollar bond. So we'll keep an eye out there. I want to move on, though, to uh, what's yeah. happening with China's energy market. So we know that China's biggest coal miners, they've pledged to increase production. China's struggling with a deepening power crisis, also threatening to uh, hobble its economic growth. Uh, Jack, which sectors stand to benefit from this power crunch and which stand to lose? Yeah, it's an interesting uh, thing that's happening there. I think just to further on that point, it's been a combination of reduced imports coming into the country um, and reduced production. And then you have inventories that are really low in terms of gas, thermal coal. You also have the you know banning of Australian coal, which has led to a real reduction in the ability for to really provide energy um, for the for the country. So this is a, a real big supply issue for China. It's obviously affecting their factories. I think the other point that we've got to make is mm -hmm. they're moving towards you know carbon emissions or reducing those carbon emissions, mm -hmm. and that's been part of it. So two thirds of provinces haven't met their carbon emission standards and I think you've seen a reduction in those issues contributing to it. So there's a, a whole bunch of combination of factors that are leading to an energy glut or a supply within China um, and that's really, again, affecting the economy going forward. So it'll be interesting to see how they handle it. There is a winter coming up in China um, that I will point out to listeners. You know, if that's a really cold winter, we could see a further drain 
on that. So we did hear that China Sinopec came into the market a couple of days ago and outbid a lot of foreign buyers in terms of a, um, a distribution of coal, which kind of pushed those prices up. So again, another big choke point for China. And then they've got the Winter Olympics coming up in 2022. So they don't want to really emit too much because they kind of want to keep, keep the, the air clean. So again, a lot of managing here. In terms of the sectors, I tell you what you don't buy. You don't buy Chinese energy producers um, because their margins are going to be killed, and this is why. They're buying it at higher rates, and they're heavily regulated. They've got a cap on what they can sell those prices at because China understands that its people need energy, and it's not going to allow them to gout the market, if that makes sense. So if anything, I wouldn't be buying Chinese energy producers but you may have a look at other areas that will benefit or other companies outside of the region that will benefit from these higher prices. You know, things like Woodside uh, come to mind. Some of the U.S. Um, gas producers come to mind, but definitely not Chinese domestic users. They definitely won't um, benefit from this, this area. So, again, it hits, it hits China in terms of its GDP growth target. I think the way out of it is they really got to, boost those imports that are coming in and try to boost production, which is way down in terms of coal uh, and, and, and gas. And the other thing that we need to understand, this is globally, or I'll switch it globally to you for, you for okay. a moment. I hate mm-hmm. to go away from China because it is my favourite topic. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing gas prices around the world, you know, go up considerably. And, and it's a combination of being at home. So we're all at home. We're using more energy. And we've seen a lack of investment in terms of, new gas pipelines, new oil pipelines for quite a long time because of that movement towards clean energy. So it's kind of a perfect storm. And you've got this glut um, of transport lines where things are just getting here later and later and later and the increased cost. And it's, it's contributing to kind of a perfect storm for energy at the moment. I think we will get over this bump. There's plenty, plenty of oil around. Gas maybe is a different issue. But once we increase those supply lines, I'm sure we're going to talk about inflation in a moment. You'll see a reduction in this, and, and, and this should lead to, to, to the greater economy. So kind of a perfect storm for China and for the rest of the world in terms of energy prices right now. Yeah, speaking of energy, I mean, OPEC plus, the, the group of oil-producing nations, is increasing production, but it says it'll only do it gradually. And so that is also a contributing factor to price spikes, uh, demand appearing to yeah. outstrip supply. And the price of Brent has jumped to more than 81 US dollars a barrel. That's the highest yeah. price in seven years, by the way. Um, amidst all this and what's going on in energy markets, could uranium be a winner? Now, the reason we're talking about this is because last week, one of our commentators uh, pointed out there's been aggressive buying in, in the world's largest ETF, physical uranium ETF, the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust Fund. And, and we've seen uranium yeah. prices sort of gyrate up almost 60% in the past couple of weeks. So um, yeah. what, what do you think about what this power crunch could mean for uranium? Could uranium be a winner? Yeah, I mean, I when you look at so uranium's got to have a uranium power plant, right? And I'm not an expert, but I have looked into this, so I, I will provide some commentary on that. I don't think many Western countries are building them or have plans to build them. I know China and India have, and we've talked about um, nuclear power and uranium being a, a big part of, of energy. And from everything that I understand about uranium is it's a fairly good source of energy. Um, it's fairly low cost. Um, it's fairly long standing, And 
to be considered it's fairly safe. You know, it's got some there. I think there's a few things going against uranium. The first one is the negative connotations that come about it. Nuclear power plants, Chernobyl, I think that still resonates in people's minds. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing that I'll counter with that is you can have all the uranium in the world, but if you don't have plants to process them and produce it into energy, then you know how can it be the winner in terms of you know being the world's energy energy source? Mm-hmm. And I don't think the U.S. has built one in the last 20 years or, or has any plans to build one. And I don't think many Western nations or developed nations outside of the world, with maybe the exception of Japan, have any intention to build any nuclear power plants, which would be a major source of uranium supply. So that's my fear of playing this. Um, and I've been hearing about uranium for a long time. It's always been that, let's go to uranium. So... If you start to see Western nations and major nations around the world outside of China and India jump on the nuclear power plant, then I think, yeah, it's definitely going to be a great winner out of this. But we're moving towards clean energy, um, and that's just no matter what. We're going to do it no matter what the cost, uh, and I think in the long term it's going to be solar, it's going to be wind, it's going to be water. They're going to be the clean winners in terms of, of energy, and I think solar is my pick out of all of them. Um, in terms of that. So, yeah, I'd, I'd be wary mm-hmm. as a long-term trend. Surely I'm sure you're going to see some short-term trends, but mm-hmm. that's my thought process when I, when, I, when I think about uranium as being a winner. All right. Thanks for that. Jacuzzi joining us live this morning. He's founder and director of the VFS Group. Let's uh, switch gears and take a step back and look at U.S. markets. So Fed Chair Jerome Powell moving off from the transitory phrase that he's been, you know, really working uh, and, and using the phrase uh, frustrating in relationship to inflation. He still expects inflation to ease gradually, but says he sees current pressures really running into 2022. Jack, what does this mean for investors? I mean, can we inflation-proof our portfolio? Do we need to at this point? Yeah, Jay Powell with the uh, with the transitory pivot on the uh, on the wording. We saw some. I mean, we had the FOMC meeting in the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, they did say inflation was running out of hand, but they did think that it was going to be curbed by 2022. Yeah, I've always said that inflation is the biggest risk to the market. Um, you can inflation-proof your portfolio. I mean, if you think inflation is going to get out of hand, there's actually an ETF on it now uh, called yeah. Inflation. There's a couple. Uh, yeah. Um, so, you know, you may look at banks because inflation will probably lead to higher interest rates. We know that we're starting to see some dot plots and some forecasting for interest rates to go up. So there are plenty of ways you can hedge for that inflation. I'm still in the camp that it's transitory. Really? Uh, I don't think it's a long-term persistent problem, and and here is why. Mm -hmm. Retail sales have been disappointing. You know, we really haven't seen retail sales, you know, boost like we saw. We saw that in the last month. Um, The employment numbers have been good but still disappointing. We have seen some wage growth, but it hasn't been as as paramount as, as, as we are car sales, which were a big part of inflation in those inflationary reads, particularly used cars, they've also been disappointing. I think the chip sector is catching up, um, which will reduce that. If you look at things like N2 money supply, so the amount of liquidity in the system, that's been on a gradual decline within the US economy, uh, which should be an inflation curbar. You know, we talk about commodities, X, oil and, and energy, Timber's down nearly 60% this year, or lumbar. Uh, 
Copper's down almost 20%. I know they're historically high prices still, Mm -hmm. but we are starting to see that crunch coming in. Um, The other point, and this is actually not my point, I borrow it from from Kathy, who you're going to ask the question there. She talks about inventories, right? She says that companies try to get ahead of the supply constraint conserve, so they built up a lot of their inventories, um, which means they're going to have to push their prices down or try to get rid of these inventories, and you'll start to see it. She, she quotes something like Clorox, who sells away down because everybody just bought enough Clorox and, and stuffed it in their in their back. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so those type of things that we did in the pandemic, where we stockpiled things and pushed some of those prices up, we've already got it in the household. Uh, you talk about. Uh, you know, computer screens. I've got six computer screens. I don't need to buy any computer screens for another couple of years because I just tried to stock up. Those types of things will start to see some slack come out and that's where I think you're going to see prices come down. I go back to cars. Um, you know, used cars were a big part of inflation. They were a massive part. In fact, in the, the last week we saw, they were almost 1.5 to 2. Don't quote me on it, but it was a big part of that inflation rate. You know, we yeah, saw the biggest was. purchase of cars since World War Two. You know, people just stopped transporting, so we, we bought cars. So there are, while there are some inflationary aspects in terms of supply lines and transport lines, there are also some big deflationary aspects that are coming in. And growth isn't as strong as we thought it was. We talk about China. We thought about, you know, every economist and his dog was quoting 7%, 8% growth in China and GDP, including myself. We're looking at, you know, six and a half. There are, while there are some inflationary expectations, there are also some deflationary expectations coming in. So what is transitory? I mean, no one ever defined it. Um, but I don't believe we're going to have see persistent inflation. And if you think about something like Kathy says, she says, I'm quoting her by her first name, like I know her, um, you know, she's talking about deflationary aspects. And she's more worried about deflation yes. than inflation. So, yeah, I... I'm in that camp. I'm in the I'm in the inflation is under control. And here's the last point I will say is that inflation hasn't been a problem for a long time because of one thing and that's technology. And technology is still around. We're talking over StreamYard here, Zoom, um, you know, we're reducing costs, digitization, apps. That is still that's been the biggest deflationary or weight on inflation. And that's not going away anytime soon, and I think that will that will help curb it. So, I think JPOW has done a really good job. I think they know what they're doing, and I believe them when they say we will get inflation under control. Now, some people will call me an idiot, and there's a lot of inflation crazy people out there. And I'm not going to call them crazy; that's a bad way, but they they're really worried about it. It's, I think we're going to be okay. Particularly as, and here's the last thing I'll make here, Delta was kind of a, you know, we didn't see it coming. It was another strain. It kind of re-shut us down and then you had to muck around with supply lines. That's starting to curb itself. We're all getting vaccinated. Your Amazon parcel is going to get to you quicker than it ever has and that's going to be a deflationary effect going forward. Okay, we just have a 60 seconds left on the clock, but I want to squeeze this oh, in, no. Jack. Talk too much. No, not at all. Ge- terrific nuance look at, at, at themes driving markets. But tech shares, um, rising bond yields have hammered um, tech prices, and we saw tech shares was hit overnight, the NASDAQ dropping more than 2%. Um, buying opportunity, Jack, or what is your take on where tech is Let's headed? put it this way. 
Okay. Think about it. You buy companies, you buy them because people use them. Yeah. I woke up this morning, my Amazon Alexa told me what time it is and what the temperature was. I'm talking to you on my Mac laptop. I'm streaming to you. I'm on my Apple store. I'm on Facebook all day. These are things that we use every day. 2% yields. Mm -hmm. Why is that a big problem for tech? These are the companies of the future, the ones that we are increasingly use. I'm buying tech on a pullback right here. And my favorite epicenter of tech is big uh, big cap tech. These are all weather stocks. I'm a buyer at these levels. Enough said. On the 60 seconds, that was pretty good. That was really good. Well, great to actually see you in person, Jack. This is the first time, in case you're listening Thank to you, us. Michelle. We have chatted with Jack Cousy uh, for, over a number of shows, but this is the first time we're watching him live. Jack, good to have you with we us. We should do it again. We absolutely will. Jack Cousy is um, going to be joining us next month right here on Your Money. Uh, it's time to head to the news, everybody. Thank you so much for being here with us here on Your Money. Before acting on the information on Money FM. Please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.